Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Andy Williams, the Rail Salt Lake original and head scout who courageously blew the whistle to the athletic on the pattern of racist incidents involving owner Deloy Hansen, who's now selling his soccer teams. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Pellegrino Matarazzo, and Micah Richards, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Andy Williams on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good. The mini break on this podcast is about the length of the mini break for the soccer season. So ready for a full 10-month sprint of nonstop games. That offseason went by pretty quickly. We at least got a week and a half off on the podcast, but it's good to be back. Premier League starting next weekend. But I want to talk right now on about the biggest story of the week, and that is Lionel Messi. His saga is over. He told Gold.com, breaking his silence, that he will be staying at Barcelona, but he went off on what is happening at Barcelona. Basically said that he wanted to leave, and the club won't let him, and he isn't going to take them to court. And so... Now we have a situation where the best player in the world is at a club against his will, in a sense. And it's absolutely insane. Like, I I don't feel like because it was on maybe it was on gold.com or maybe because I don't live in Spain, I don't realize the kind of magnitude of this. But I feel like the article came out and it's this huge piece of of a full length interview and the video comes out. And I think we've really adequately digested that the biggest star in the world of this sport, the biggest sport in the world, completely unleashed on the club that he's going to play for next year. And I just kind of wonder what the dynamics of it will be because he clearly doesn't want to be there. At the first sign of things going wrong, the conversation will be, well, what's Messi thinking? What's Messi going to do? The the, the deadline or the, the beginning of Lionel Messi being able to sign for another club is in like a little more than three months. He can start to negotiate a pre-contract with his new club. And I just... How is Ronald Koeman going to handle the situation? It doesn't seem like they got off to a great start. I don't know how this season that is upcoming for Barcelona can be anything other than a complete disaster on and off the field. And it's just crazy to me that Messi gave such explosive quotes when he's going to walk into the environment anyway. Yeah, I I don't know if part of me thinks it's going to be horrible to watch or just totally entertaining from a personality perspective over the next several months because... The Barcelona team that we saw at the end of the season, including the 8-2 loss to Bayern Munich, but also at the end of the La Liga season, is a team that may not even finish in the top two in La Liga this season, right? I Yeah, I mean, because Atletico, is, is, they always have the potential to be able to climb further up the table. They have the talent to do so, which just, can they score enough goals? But Absolutely. I mean, what we saw towards the end of the season, what happened in that Bayern Munich match, and then you think about what they're attempting to do in the transfer market. They did that crazy deal for Pjanic that's like it's this absurd transfer going one way. It's just total creative bookkeeping. They've been linked to Giorgino Vinaldum, but who knows if Liverpool wants to sell him or if Barcelona want to wait to get him on a free. There doesn't appear to be movement towards improving the squad other than bringing Philippe Coutinho back, who might be 
the symbol in Messi's mind of what's wrong at Barcelona, which is not to criticize Coutinho that much for what he has or has not brought, but Messi in the interview said that we don't, we're not planning, there is no project at Barcelona, which is a big word in the soccer world. There is no project, meaning a long-term strategy for when our big players go, Xavi and Iniesta and eventually Piquet and eventually me, who is going to replace me? Who is going to fill in the gaps at Barcelona? And as players have gotten older, as Neymar left, you bring in Coutinho, as you bring in Usman Dembele and all these guys trying to fix these problems, it doesn't seem like it's towards a coherent long-term strategy. And I think this could be the year that it really catches up to Barcelona because you don't know if Koeman's going to have these players on side and you don't know week in, week out if you're going to get a motivated team, never mind how congested the season is going to be. Well, right now it's looking like Luis Suarez is going to be out, headed to Juventus. Ivan Rakitic is already out to Sevilla. Arturo Vidal out, uh, likely to Inter. And coming in, it's a, this Dutch influence, not just with Kuhlman, but Memphis Depay looks like he may be coming in. You mentioned Jorginho Wijnaldum uh, from Liverpool, who has not signed an extension with Liverpool, and he only has one season left on his contract. So it's possible that there might be a few positive-looking developments there, but it just seems like that's going to take a lot of time to come together. And just to assume that the Dutch guys are going to make everything right, Frankie de Jong had sort of a rough season last year. I thought overall. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just don't see this Barcelona team as it's currently constituted winning La Liga. I don't see them competing to win Champions League. And if Messi ends up signing a pre-contract with Manchester City in January, it could be a real slog this season. And I, I as a soccer person, I'd be really bummed out to waste a year of Messi's career when he doesn't have many years left. And even heading towards the long term, Barcelona, and it was funny because Greg Berhalter took some stick yesterday because he gave a quote to the German newspaper Bild that he thinks that Christian Pulisic can play for one of the biggest clubs in the world, which <laughs> it seems like some shade towards Chelsea. But when you talk about Barcelona, right, Barcelona are the biggest club in the world, right? Them or Real Madrid, they fight for this title every year in Spain, right? And the idea that Messi could leave at some point, and they don't have a ready-made star replacement to fill in this void, right? Who would that next person be in Mbappe? It would have been Neymar had he stayed. It just seems like going forward, Barcelona's in real, real trouble here. And they will always have the financial clout to get out of it in some way, but we've seen other big clubs go through swoons before and a few years where they're just kind of lost in the wilderness. And at the very least, they had an identity and that next in line at Barcelona. And... I think that's part of why they brought in Ronald Koeman, because he play, he's obviously a descendant of Johan Cruyff. He played at the club, and he can bring some of that tradition back. But I think you also kind of have to marry that right now with a manager that wants to get this team on side. And I just don't know if the way that Ronald Koeman's got about it, first off, telling the best player and your biggest star's best friend that he's surplus to requirements, like that first move and the move of going in and trying to clean house and get rid of some of the older guys... I don't know if that was necessarily a great first step and a step towards trying to fix this problem. So even beyond a wasted year of Messi, which I agree with you is a total bummer, I'm concerned about the long-term future of Barcelona as the biggest club or one of the biggest clubs in the world. I just hope that Jorge Messi, who seems to want to go to the mattresses quite a bit with people in the business world, I hope that they've arranged for some sort of last dance type video 
behind the scenes <laughs> camera following this season because I think it's going to be really entertaining. And and and, uh, and I think it, and I think it could have been possible if the coat because right a key ingredient of the last dance is that yes we hate the front office and the front office wants to get rid of us but. The coach is the one who orchestrated the last dance. Phil Jackson handed out this binder at the beginning of the year. I wish they brought in like some charismatic character. I, I, I don't even know who. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But some like happy-go-lucky, we bring the joy into the camp kind of manager to bring Barcelona through. He's like, all right, last dance, guys. We really hate Bartomeu. Let's go win one last Champions League <laughs> for him or, or, or like a, in spite of him or something like that. I, I actually do think this could have been a storyline, except... Imagine there's two Jerry Krauses, one in charge of the organization and one who's the manager. <laughs> That's just depressing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, let's, let's move on here to other big news of the week. Chelsea makes it official. Kai Havertz is a Chelsea player. And of all the signings that they've made, and they've made a, a lot already in a very productive transfer window, this is the one that stands out the most. And really makes you feel like Chelsea is in a position to be the most dangerous attacking team potentially in the Premier League. But I still have a question. You have a podcast, obviously, that deals with Chelsea. Is another center back coming? Potentially Jose Maria Jimenez or Declan Rice, who isn't really a center back. But is there still another big signing coming for the defense for Chelsea? It's fascinating, though, because... I obviously experience a lot of Chelsea Twitter, and it's really funny to see, well, what's next? Well, what's next? Well, why can't you just take a sit a sit down, have a lie down for a while, smoke a cigarette, and enjoy the business your club has done? No one else in the world is doing business like Chelsea are right now. So you've you brought in four starting caliber players, Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech, Kai Havertz, and Ben Chilwell, right? That's a really good transfer window in and of itself. I do think, and, and it's been discussed, Frank Lampard has talked about a three-year project following this transfer ban season. So I don't think they were going to bring in a world-class attack and three more center backs and a better goalkeeper than, than what they have in one window, but they've done all their business early. They're going to have a team that's ready for the first game of the season, and maybe as things pop up, maybe they can try and do it on the cheap, which I think they try to do with Thiago Silva, but I do think they have more work to do. At the same time, I agree with you that Havertz is an amazing transfer, and I've heard Raphael Honigstein on CBS describe him as the best player coming through in this Germany generation, which is such high praise. But I actually think Timo Werner, in terms of ready-made, ready-to-contribute, might be still their best transfer just as a clinical center forward. Tammy Abraham had ups and downs last season. If Werner comes in as a 25-goal scorer, which he's been the last couple seasons in Germany, that's a huge game-changer for them. Just in general, their attack is going to look absolutely amazing. They're going to be entertainers, but I agree. Eventually, the attention does have to turn to defense and goalkeeper. I just don't, I think it's really hard to say in this window, in this coronavirus climate, that you're going to be able to get all that business done in one summer. I think what they've already done is amazing. And if they finish it off with two more signings, a center back and a goalkeeper, I mean, it might be one of the best transfer windows ever. Yeah, I agree with that. I just feel like, to me, Chelsea is a serious contender to win the Premier League if they still sign a goalkeeper and another center back, a top level center back. I don't think they are a serious contender to win the title this season unless mm -hmm. they do that. I do wonder, and obviously the transfer win window doesn't end until October, mm -hmm. but first game of the season, is Kepa your starting goalkeeper? <laughs> I think he kind of has to be, doesn't he? I mean, I he believe he the started... Season. <laughs> well, I, I believe he started the first friendly that they played before the international break against uh, Brighton, but 
I do think that Kepa probably does start and go. I mean, unless they've been linked with a goalkeeper from Wren, which of course is uh, Petr Cech's old club. Uh, Mendy is his last name. And if you can get him over the line in time, but do you just pluck him right in in goal and you go straight from Ligue 1 to starting from Chelsea and you're, we're, we're a week away from the first game of the season. And so I, I don't know. I think it's probably going to have to be Kepa. And as you said... I think that's just what stops Chelsea from... I think they, they're a real contender for me this year to score like 100 goals. But can they do enough in terms of defending? Are they going to have some games where maybe they aren't putting away the goals and they're vulnerable at the back in which you give away one or two chances and it leads to one or two goals? That's really what it comes down to for Chelsea and for Man City as well is making sure those few chances you give away per game don't result in goals. And I, I don't know if Thiago Silva... And Ben Chilwell, we should say that they did sign a defender, if not in central defense. But Chilwell and Thiago Silva is enough to lock that down, or maybe they need another window to really finish the project. I also think, is there not a danger in signing too many players in one transfer window? Because once you get into 6-7, you're basically building a new squad, and it's not like Frank Lampard is a very experienced manager that knows how to blend in so many new players at once and build a system, especially when, when you're playing every three days, there's going to be no time for training sessions. So I do think there's diminishing returns on the number of signings you can bring in. I'll tell you what, though, from a neutral's perspective, I think Chelsea may be the most fun team to watch for neutrals in the Premier League this season. That could include conceding a fair number of goals, but I'm in, I'm in. Um, I want to move on now to the women's side in England. Mm. The WSL started its season this weekend. Easier than ever to watch in the United States because NBC did a deal with them. And also there's more American players this year. We've already seen uh, Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle sign with Man City. Jonathan Tannenwald reporting this weekend that Tobin Heath and Kristen Press have signed with Manchester United, which actually looked better than expected. Got a point against uh, defending champion Chelsea and Sam Kerr uh, in game one. Is this something that you think people will will have find a time to watch? It seems like a really good development for women's soccer that it's available much more in the United States. Well, the availability is always brilliant. And you imagine there are a lot of people that do go to the NBC Sports app during Premier League weekends to check out games and they will see the logos of Chelsea, Man United, and there'll be a women's game on. And I think one of the things that I found interesting in in working with Chelsea and doing some of the things that I do is there are times where we provide an enthusiasm for the women's game just because it's so it's so much a part of the culture here in the United States that I don't think like, for example, our bosses in England are prepared for. Because I think they're Really, they came to the women's game for me in 2015 in, in reality, right? 2015, they finished third at the World Cup in Canada, and it became, as the tournament went on from a complete afterthought, wouldn't even be mentioned on football podcasts I listened to, to now women's coverage is a major part of the media game over there. So I think that people here in this country will see the logos of their favorite teams playing. It's like, oh, let me let me give this a try. And I watched the Community Shield last weekend. It was a great game, just really entertaining uh, between Chelsea and Manchester City. I watched uh, the game you mentioned this morning between Chelsea and Manchester United. And Manchester United, by the way, in terms of they, they brought back their women's team in 2018. And now they're, they're starting to take this seriously, bringing a couple of big American signings. Was really impressed with how they play. And I think with those two new players, they have a chance to probably finish in the top four, joining Chelsea, Man City, and Arsenal. So, yeah, I absolutely think that there'll be fans in this country that are just so conditioned to appreciate the women's game that they'll give their logo a chance when it pops up on the NBC Sports app and they're just kind of flicking around on a Saturday or Sunday morning. 
Yeah, I think it's really cool, too. And for anyone who watched the Women's World Cup closely, a lot of those stars are coming to England. Jackie Gronin had a huge influence in Man United getting this tie against Chelsea. She was terrific for the Netherlands in the World Cup. Pernille Harder didn't play in the World Cup. One of the best players in the world on the women's side just signed for a record fee with Chelsea. She came on as a sub in this game. We know how good Sam Kerr is. She scored, but also missed a few chances. Uh, there's just a lot of a lot more money being spent now in England. And I can't wait to see Tobin Heath and Kristen Press playing for Man United because that was a, a, a team that I that's a team that I think they can make better and potentially make even a contender uh you know in the league there. And because the leagues are smaller, there are fewer teams, and so the the con- the condensation of money, you can build really, really good squads. And I've always kind of thought that I've I've heard somewhere that the the figure roughly for Lyon to build their world class best squad in the world win the Champions League every year squad is around 10 million euros for a big club like Manchester United that's a rounding error to them like they could very easily put together a great women's team with a great facility if they wanted to and so now that it seems like they are like they do want to that Chelsea as you as you mentioned spent 300,000 euros for a world record transfer fee on Pernille Harder it just seems like these big clubs that already do so much in the men's game can very easily become great quickly. And I'm really interested to see this arms race. Who else joins them? Do clubs uh, from beyond just France and England and to a lesser extent Germany, Wolfsburg and Bayern Munich are, are, are good clubs in Germany as well. Do you see more investment and more big clubs realizing, hey, we can grow our brand exponentially with a very minimal investment. Yeah, in Spain too. I mean, Real Madrid just getting into it, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like Manchester United. Barcelona's gotten better in recent years, obviously. Uh, Atletico Madrid has a pretty good team too. Um, this was also an international weekend, the first one we've seen in a long time, at least in UEFA. And I ended up watching a couple of UEFA Nations League games. I got to admit... It is what it is. I kind of like the setup of of Nations League because you at least add a competitive game atmosphere and you've got competitive teams playing sort of like for like. And so you see Spain playing against Germany. And I even tuned in uh, Andorra Faroe Islands today just because why not? I had nothing else to watch in the morning over my coffee. And, you know, Gibraltar got a W for the first time in forever against San Marino. So, like, I get that the international games are what they are. Um, do, are you are you okay with Nations League and as at least an improvement over what it replaces? I have heard Jonathan Wilson make the argument that it is actually an even better competition than you realize, and it's a really compelling point because you do want to see international teams evenly matched up, and the process of qualifying is very often tedious in most confederations because you know who the good teams are. And so not only is it bad viewing, but it also doesn't really allow the so-called minnows, the smaller countries, to grow. A story like Iceland is very much a one-off, right, where they end up towards the upper echelon because they manage to pull off great performances in qualifying and get to the Euros and then beat England and then get to the World Cup. But that's very much an outlier. I was actually watching on Thursday. So on the ESPN app on Apple TV, you can put four games on at the same time. And I picked Faroe Islands Malta as my fourth game. (laughs) 
And I ended up, my eyes drifted there more than it drifted towards Germany and Spain. It was a competitive, fun game to watch. And I, I, I think the competition, the promotion relegation, to allow smaller countries a real chance at upper mobility. And I actually think this was going to help the CONCACAF Nations League a bunch. Right. We've, been, we've been begging for CONCACAF to get stronger as a league. It needs competitions like this, and it matters to them. We, we very often think, you know, it, it, to a lesser extent in America, but also in England, they care about big international football. But if you're in Bulgaria, you care about Bulgaria playing competitive games and having a similar level and trying to grow, and I think this competition helps that. So I love this idea. I think it's a really cool competition and really great for the smaller nations across the world. You know what's also fun for me is when I'm watching this game today from Andorra, and just the view outside the stadium yes. was amazing. Like there was this mountain valley that if I were at that game, I'd want to go and take a hike in afterward. And that would just be a great day with some good food. It made me realize how I haven't traveled anywhere since February. <laughs> and I kind of liked the evocative nature of seeing that or seeing the game in Gibraltar where literally it's like next to the airport and you can see <laughs> planes coming in right outside the stadium. And you're like, is that safe <laughs> <laughs> although i will say there are two mls grounds that are built right next to airports that i know of uh one is san jose it's like literally right there and actually inter miami's new stadium is right next to an executive airport you hear uh buzzing airplanes over it all the time but you're so right about this the the landscapes in the background of stadiums are a delight of uefa nations league <laughs> oh shoot um so let's talk about atlanta united we'll, we'll move to our part of the world here um I watched the entire game against Orlando City. Atlanta gets a late goal through Adam John, ends up being 1-1. But Orlando probably deserved the three points, which would have been their second consecutive win and second ever win uh, against Atlanta. We've seen now Frank DeBoer get fired. Steven Glass is in as an interim. We've seen this week P.D. Martinez about to be sold uh, to a team in Saudi Arabia reports that Ezekiel Barco may be about to be bought by Sevilla and Darren Eels, their president coming out and saying that uh, if, if Petey's leaving the team and that's what it looks like, that they are going to replace him with a new DP in this window, even potentially before they have a new coach. And I'm wondering, this is one of the flagship teams in MLS kind of before our very eyes being turned completely upside down. And what are your thoughts on, on the developments we've seen the past week? And I imagine, you know, Fox Sports, they put this game on over-the-air Fox, and you want a flagship Atlanta United that plays like a flagship Atlanta United in this game, and instead you saw a shell of a team that I, I had their game against Inter-Miami, and yeah, I mean, they had one chance with Kubo Torres, who like volleyed over the bar, but I mean, to me... They've gotten the Barco DP signing wrong, uh, and 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 they might still make money on it. But in terms of what he's brought to MLS, like I think Miguel Almiron is the standard, perhaps unfairly, uh, and along with Diego Rossi and Carlos Vela, are the standard by which DPs are measured. Barco and Piti have not measured up. Atlanta's subsequent roster moves: they brought in players from Bra uh, Brazil, like Mateo Sozeto, and they brought in uh, Manuel Castro, and they brought in you know some guys to try and fill out Emerson Hyman from England to try and be that kind of next Darlington Nagby. They haven't really hit the ground running, and I think you, you brought up a really important point, which is the coaching. I I'm really starting to realize when you look at Orlando City, their opponents on the night, they were better than Atlanta. They have not really brought in 
a ton of what you'd call Oscar Pareja's guys. They haven't brought in a different DP. They brought in Mauricio Pereira towards the end of last year. They had they already had Nani, but the squad isn't that much different than it was a year ago. And Oscar Pareja has them playing incredibly. A college draft pick, Daryl DK, who they got in the top five of the draft, looks incredible right now. And to me, it's very much about can a manager in a, in a, in a salary cap league implement his style of play, improve players individually, and bring through the club's philosophy. Oscar Pareja is, and Atlanta United's overall staff isn't. And so I just wonder, even if they do sign a DP in this window, it's probably the best time right now to do business, and I understand why to do it now. But it really comes down to who is their next coach? Is he going? Is that person going to improve the individuals in the Atlanta squad? And are they going to get their next DP signings right? I think a lot of it has to do with coaching. I've really developed a greater appreciation in recent years for exactly what you're talking about. And that can take place at any level of the game with coaches, managers who improve existing players. It's one thing for some coach to come in and say the second he gets in, I want to buy new players. But that's not your job necessarily. And when I see what Jurgen Klopp has done at Liverpool of making existing players better, when I see what Bob Bradley has done in a similar way at LAFC, I have a lot of respect for the ability to do that. And I think if you're Atlanta United, you want to hire a coach who can do that. And Tata Martino was a guy who could do that. And Bob Bradley, to me, is the best example because... Obviously, we talk about the headline makers in their squad, right? You talk about Diego Rossi, Carlos Vela. They spent a lot of money on Brian Rodriguez. That front line gets so much credit. And Eduard Astuesta is another player who's, who's really good. But every MLS team has guys that have been on other MLS teams that were college draft picks, that are a product of the American soccer system as we knew it before, and it's slightly changing now in the academy way. But someone like Latif Blessing, Mark Anthony Kay, Tristan Blackman... These guys, Jordan Harvey was in, was, you know, the, the left back for LAFC. Tyler Miller was the backup goalkeeper for the Sounders. There were major parts, Stephen Batisher, of that LAFC team that set the points record, that set the goals record, that, you know, probably should have won the league. And that, for me, is what MLS is all about, is everyone kind of has to pick from a similar pool of players. Once you get past seven, maybe, on your roster, because you got your three DPs, your GAM and TAM signings that are kind of you going out and, and finding your own players. But once you get past that, you're picking amongst the same pool of players. And which coaches can get the best out of those guys are the ones that succeed the most. And so that's why Oscar Pareja can be plopped down in any MLS club and succeed, because he knows how to work with these guys. He knows how to get a team unit, collective and believing. And so I've, I'm more and more becoming a believer that management is the most important part of this equation. Other news this week, Chris Armis fired by the New York Red Bulls, never really was able to get up to the heights that his predecessor, Jesse Marsh, did. It's not just Armas, but I felt like he could have been better. I also think that club could be better, and I don't really have much of an idea of what kind of identity they want to have. It's very clear at this point to me that they don't really want to spend a lot of money. Um, what do you think of the New York Red Bull situation? Well, for me, I, I do think that MLS has two New York franchises that are part of a bigger footballing conglomerate that really should be leveraged to its advantage, right? I know generally fans aren't necessarily going to get behind Red Bull like, yeah, we're the energy drink team. But what they represent at a bigger level 
is so, is so aspirational, right? We watched Leipzig in the Champions League. What they can be, if you really put effort and attention into it, would be spectacular to have in Major League Soccer. And I know the salary cap system limits them, but if they really gave it a go and you can see a very obvious plan of wanting to bring young players through and, you know, the next great star could be playing at Red Bull Salzburg or Red Bull Leipzig, and it should be New York Red Bulls. A next great star should come through that club and go on to the, the greater Red Bull conglomerate, the same with City Football Group and New York City. I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the potential, to me, if we're getting back to that earlier Atlanta conversation, well, you've seen New York drift away from, and look, let's be real, they lost Dax McCarty, Luis Robles, uh, Kamar Lawrence, Tyler Adams, Bradley Wright Phillips, the guys that were the anchors of this team that really, we don't realize how much they've been perennial playoff entrants every single year because we talk about their big failures, but they're a big club in terms of how regularly they're in the playoffs. To me, what what's drifted is... They were very clearly a high-pressing team under Jesse Marsh. The Red Bull organization is very clearly a high-pressing team, and I just don't know that they do it as effectively. Maybe because the rest of the league has figured it out, or maybe they're just not as well-drilled and have as good of players, but they've drifted from what makes Red Bull special, and that's that very specific, uh, specific identity that Rolf Ragnick had at the top of, this, uh, of the organization and implemented all the way down. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that Rolf Ragnick could be the guy to come and, and coach New York Red Bulls, but I don't think... I- you know, after not getting the job at AC Milan that he's going to come to New York, having just separated from the Red Bull company. But yeah, I, I would like to see, I live here in New York. I would like to see the Red Bulls become more relevant. Um, what's interesting is even when they were winning under Jesse Marsh, they weren't, they were a little more relevant here in the city, but they didn't have any big stars. And I just, I, I feel like there there does need to be an identity. I would like to see Red Bull spend a bit more. Doesn't need to be a lot more, but this is a New York team, and you're not just competing against NYCFC, which they are doing. You're competing against all the other professional sports teams in New York, which do spend a lot of money. Some with more success than others, <laughs> <laughs> and and you want to see. You know, you want to give people a reason to hop on the path train once they allow fans again and go out and see those games in a great stadium, by the way. Mm-hmm. Or at least you want to give them a reason to watch on TV. And, and right now, that's not happening. And anyone who has been watching will see that horrible end against DC United, which is a very bad team right now as well, yes. to lose at home right at the end. And, and that, in the end, will be the the end of the Chris Armis uh, tenure. I like Chris Armas a lot. He's one of the best guys personally I've encountered in soccer. Just just completely cares about people. Um, I just felt like it never really fit with him as the head coach of that team. Uh, and so I am curious to see what kind of a hire they will go with next. I'd like to see uh, a minority hire. You know, mm. this is still a league that has yet to have a single U.S. born black coach which is shameful. And every hire that gets made that extends that sorry state of things is bad, in my opinion. I saw you tweet this the other day, and I would be curious to get your thought. Do you know American-born candidates that are in the coaching system right now that that should get a look-in for this? I mean, one of the issues was they fired assistant coach C.J. Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fair enough. (laughs) So, yeah, I I mean, it's it's a tough one. 
and, and and this and and this by the way isn't isn't to fault you know your like your point which is obviously a great one but this right. I think also happens at like the NFL part of the Rooney Rule conversation that happens is you know obviously you have to interview minority candidates but really the issue is is that staves are built out by head coaches white people who then hire other white people. So generally, your pool in the NFL is NFL offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators. Well, if a majority of them are white, especially in this era of the NFL where the super genius offensive coordinator is what's desired, and very often that's perceived to be a white guy, then you don't have a pool of candidates. And so I actually think it's also not just on MLS to maybe hire a minority candidate here, but to really start pressing current managers to start bringing more assistant managers into your staffs that are minority and and even Hispanic as well. There aren't enough to me. There aren't enough American-born Hispanics to manage in MLS. So I, I definitely agree that this is a problem that needs sorting. If not with this job, then just generally systemically, which is obviously what we've been talking about in the last few months. No, it is systemic. I mean, when I think of somebody like you know Kobe Jones, Dante Washington, uh, players like that. You know, Kobe was an assistant for the Galaxy when Rud Hullet was the head coach there. You know, like Eddie Pope. You know, these are these are terrific former players. We've had Tony did, Sané on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, f- terrific former players who, for any number of systemic reasons, have decided not to go down the coaching path. And and it's it would be interesting to know like why 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 did they not want to do that. Uh, because I think they can add a lot to to the culture. It, maybe it's not coaching. Maybe it's front office type stuff. Mm-hmm. There's very few black and minority front office members in MLS. There was a report that came out last week from Fair, which had all the data on all of this stuff. But I I, I understand like it's not something that's going to get solved overnight. But it, it needs to get moving, you know, and, and moving in a faster way than than it has been totally agree and this is something that, I, that you're going to talk about with uh, interview guest Andy Williams as well in terms of the cult, the culture within RSL but to me th- this is and and I, I mentioned the NFL example and it's very much about white people not hiring other white people and it's it's such a difficult thing because when you hire generally it's a similar you're look you're you're trying to execute a vision of something that you're expecting and very often that's similar to you and so I, I just think that when you see that stat in that report that you mentioned, what is that, 92% of MLS executives are white? Like, that just needs to improve. And that it, it requires an extra bit of thinking beyond just, let me just hire the best person, which is what everyone in this fantasy land has decided that we're going to do. But when the results produce 92% white people, that's clearly not what you're doing. And so the, the thought process needs to go a step beyond well, let's just hire the best people. And it needs to actively seek out the representation of black, Hispanic, and other minority candidates. Yeah, don't get me started on anyone out there who says, I don't see color, because (laughs) that just causes my head to explode. Because you need to, and you need to understand all of the history over the decades and decades that has led systemically to this point to understand it. And if you're acting like it's not there you're putting your head in the sand. Mm-hmm. And actually it was interesting a couple of weeks ago when Lutz Fahnenstiel got hired um, as the technical director for the St. Louis MLS club, my initial reaction, and, and I like Lutz a lot and I think he has a fantastic story and he's done some good work with small budgets in Germany and elsewhere. And yet, so 
in and of itself, hiring him, my initial reaction is like, oh, that's an interesting hire. I also got messages from people who are, who are telling me, it's just another white guy. And like, you know, every time one of these positions comes open in MLS, nearly every time, it's another white guy. And you know what? They're right. And again, every club, it's, it's like my thing where every club names themselves City or FC because they're not responsible for MLS having a more diverse naming system, right? Where it's like, every, we, we want MLS to expand their naming nomenclature. No one club is responsible for fixing all of MLS's diversity problem. But you right. can start with fixing your own house, right? And, and, and picking, and I know that St. Louis, it's a big deal who begins the leadership of your club, but you have to seriously go out and try and make an effort to find candidates that you think can do that job. And they have to be minority in some cases. And clubs around the league have to be thinking about this in a more serious level. Otherwise, the RSL story, while it gets rid of a singular operator or whatever they call the, the MLS owners, and Andy Carroll, who's that number two in command along with Dolo Hansen, you get rid of those people, but it doesn't get rid of the problem, right? And that's what I think people... When they come for, you know, people like Deloy Hansen, you think, all right, something, a wave of change is happening. The wave of change happens when the new owner takes over and starts hiring more minorities to be in the RSL organization. That's when the actual change happens. And so for me, it's really important going forward that these conversations aren't just about fixing individual things. It's about on a bigger level owners deciding I'm going to entrust my organization to minorities. We're going to wrap up here in a second because we got Andy Williams coming on to talk about uh what happened in salt lake his role as the whistleblower in it but just wanted to get your quick sense on this deloy hansen story happened very quickly um a lot of things came together where you had the shooting in kenosha wisconsin seven shots in the back of an unharmed black man and the milwaukee bucks decide they're not going to play their nba game None of the NBA games take place that night. All but one of the MLS games is postponed that night. Players taking a stand. And Deloy Hansen comes out the next morning on one of the radio stations he owns. Apparently he owns a lot. He's a billionaire in Utah. And talks about how it's a stab in the back to him that his players decided not to play the previous night. And... He's going to lay off minimum wage workers in the stadium, not going to have any fans coming in. And also, by the way, oh, I'm not going to invest as much in buying players for this team because I, Deloy Hansen, was the real victim of my players deciding not to play. So obviously totally missing the point. That then sets off, and you'll listen to Andy Williams explain it, but sets off Andy Williams to go public and blow the whistle about Deloy Hansen and multiple examples of racist behavior that Andy Williams had experienced, witnessed firsthand over the years. Within days, Deloy Hansen is announcing he's going to sell all his, his teams, including RSL, including the Utah Royals, including the USL team he owns. A lot of real estate, too. Stadiums, training sites. Basically, MLS's Donald Sterling is, is what this became. Um and in the week that this since this happened, I've gotten more and more admiration for Andy Williams. And just in general, for people within organizations that want to 
tell their story, right? It's really hard. And Andy Williams describes, well, how did you keep taking checks from this guy? And and you asked him about, you know, this perception out there that he should have said something sooner. And it's very easy to say, but I don't think people realize within organizations when, like, how helpless it can feel when not only do I feel like this won't change something, but I don't even feel like at a starting level I'm going to get heard. Because I've talked to other people who have filed complaints with HR, and they've gone nowhere, right? When you don't feel like you have somewhere to go, and you don't want to lose your livelihood, you don't know if you can find another chief scouting job working for another club, and we just talked about the systemic problem of clubs not hiring minorities, right? You've got one of the jobs that you want. Are you going to give it up when the very real chance is you're not going to find another job? And so I find a deep admiration for someone to put something on the line. And now look, he's furloughed. So there is kind of a certain freedom in that to be like, well, I'm not getting paid by this guy anyway. I might as well say something. And I just, to me, how quickly that all developed, it makes sense given the current environment, but also these are very powerful people. And as you mentioned, there's a lot to untangle here with Delroy Hansen. And, you know, within MLS, I imagine he's done things within, I mean, look, he did a lot within NWSL to get the Challenge Cup off. That happened at Delroy Hansen's facilities. So there's a lot to untangle. And I don't think it's as easy as people say it is. I mean, it's easy, yes, to make the decision Delo Hansen should not be in our league anymore. But to find another owner who's going to keep RSL going at the level that they are now, that, you know, it, and ma- making sure you're not leaving yourself vulnerable to legal challenges from Dole Hansen about being thrown out of the league. This stuff isn't easy to sort out. And they got it sorted out pretty quickly. I commend MLS for, you know, being proactive about this and not waiting as kind of the NBA did. Let's not necessarily give them a ton of credit. Yes, eventually Adam Silver gave a press conference, but it was a lot of hemming and hawing and figure out what to do in the interim. MLS said, this guy's not going to be part of our league anymore. And that decision happened fairly quickly. And so it is a lot to untangle. You mentioned not only the, the facilities, also I think he owns like a high school in the area. Like I've heard the expression, I've listened to a lot of podcasts about this story. There's an expression that there's the two mountains in Salt Lake City and everything else in between is owned by Deloitte Hanson. Like, that's how powerful this guy is in this area. So I, I imagine that it could take some sorting out and, and figuring out. And it's really important that the next step for RSL is a positive one. It is interesting that the market rate now for buying an MLS team, Charlotte paid $325 million for their expansion fee. So it looks like Deloitte Hanson's actually going to make a pretty tidy profit out mm-hmm. of all of this. And, you know, that feels a little weird. Well, but it's, also, it's, it's the same as Donald Sterling, who made $2 billion from the sale of the Clippers. So yeah. yeah, and whoever brings that money in, whether it's the Utah Jazz owners or J.J. Watt's group or Josie Altidore's group or whomever, um, you would think if they're going to pay that much money that they're going to make sure the team is invested in. So if you're a soccer fan out in Utah, I think you can be fairly optimistic about the future, especially if that future does not include Deloitte Hansen or Andy Carroll or that culture and that the culture changes. And I do hope Andy Williams is a part of that new culture. But at this point, I'm I'm ready to let Andy do the talking. So uh, thanks so much. As always, Chris, great to talk to you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Andy Williams. Our guest today is Andy Williams. He has been with the Real Salt Lake organization since 2005, first as a player and most recently as its head scout, a position he was furloughed from earlier this year. 
Last week, he became a whistleblower, telling the athletic Sam Stasekel that he had witnessed multiple examples of racist behavior by RSL owner Deloy Hansen, including the use multiple times of the N-word. Williams likened Hansen to the disgraced former NBA owner Donald Sterling. After a public uproar earlier this week, Deloy Hansen announced he would be selling the soccer teams he owns in MLS, the NWSL, and the USL. Andy, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. I, I, it's been a few years since uh, we've done an interview, but I enjoyed covering you during your playing career. What you did uh, by going public uh, was uh, a really big thing. Uh, you became the first person to go public with what you said about Deloy Hansen, and, and that took a lot of courage. He's a billionaire with a lot of influence in Utah, and nobody had been willing to go on the record with their name on it about Hanson before like that. What were the factors that led to your decision to go public? Oh, all of that was correct what you just said. Um, basically, it happened um, Thursday morning after like, I woke up about 10-something that day. And I heard, like I just saw the headlines of him going on doing his radio interview, the first one in the morning. And when I saw, I didn't read the article, what he said, but just the gist of it, I knew kind of what he was talking about. And then with him coming at the players like that, within 30 minutes after that, I think Sam Stasel called me and he was asking me if I would, you know, go on record about what I know. So I'm like, based on everything happening in the world right now, I just said, yes, I'll go on record. I think sometimes people have a hard time understanding this outside of the situation. I mean, uh, there were a few of us journalists, and, and Sam was certainly one of them. Sam used to work at the, the Salt Lake organization. Um, there were a few other ones, including me. You know, I'd heard rumors over the years that, that Deloitte Hansen had potential issues. But whenever I talked to people, there, there was a real fear, an unwillingness to go to go public, that he was a really powerful guy. Yeah, because you never know what the backlash will be. You know, you don't know what, you know, you're thinking about your career. Um, you know, I wasn't by myself um, when, you know, he said what he said the both times. So I'm just a scout. Like, if my GM and other people above me aren't saying anything, like, like how, uh, who am I? Was it your sense that the HR department was not a place that could be trusted to handle a... A complaint like that? I've heard other stuff where um, other employees went to HR to complain about whether it was Andy Carroll or even Deloitte himself. And I know a few employees have been like, you know, a week later, they're not working there anymore. Either they're fired or you, they just disappear. So it goes around the, the building, you know, and everybody's like, all right, we go to HR. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Just looking back to last week, what were the specific risks that you took by going public? Well, personally for me, you know, you, you're looking on, like, I'm not sure what's going to happen here with me. I'm still on furlough. I haven't heard from anybody at the time. And, you know, I'm thinking about my family and the next step I need to take, like, whether I need to apply somewhere else. Um, but, you know, if I did this, is this going to affect me, you know, other owners or another GM or like, ah, I don't know if I should, you know, he might do this, he might do that. So I just got to that after, you know, like I said, hearing that statement that he made, I was just like, you know what, it's not worth it. 
I'll, I'll just do it. What were the chances in your mind that going public would actually lead to Hanson deciding to sell the team and having pressure to do that? Um, like I wasn't thinking about all of that, you know, <laughs> like I just knew that if I tell me, tell my story of what, what, you know, happened to me, like I know there's witnesses, so it's not like my word against his. So I knew if I came out, I had other people to back me up, you know, so I wasn't worried about that. Yeah, maybe I was thinking in the back of my head, oh, what if he sues me or whatever, you know, he's like you said, he's a billionaire, he can, but I was like, you know, I'm not the only one here. There's a bunch of people around me that can back me up and I wasn't worried about that if I came out with it. So you've been on furlough for a few months at RSL. What does that mean? Were you still being paid in any way? Were you still working at all for the club? No, not at all. Since So I think my last paycheck was uh, furloughed in April. I think May was the last time I got paid from you know, RSL. So, you know, wasn't in contact, no email worked anymore. Um, so I was just like out there. So I just stayed home and continued doing my work, watching soccer on my own because you know, that's what I do. Um, and, you know, just thought that at the time they said maybe in June, July, you know, we would come back, everybody would be working. So I just figured, all right, I just wait till then. Like I wasn't worried about it. Like, I just figured they'd work something out. I knew the league was working on trying to make a schedule. And then the Orlando bubble came up, and I was like, okay, you know, maybe still didn't hear anything from the front office. And I'm like, okay, maybe they're waiting until they get back here. So come back here is the first week of the new schedule, and I'm like, whoa, all right, still nothing. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so then I kind of like, all right, let's start working on the resume because this doesn't look positive, you know, so um, still working on it, <laughs> but I just have a, a few things to add to it. I, I've just been lazy to get around to. I mean, you're kind of in an interesting spot right now. I mean, you've taken this courageous standpoint to, to be public about what you had experienced and witnessed, and it looks now, you know, Hanson has decided to announce he's selling the team. You've got the chief business officer, Andy Carroll, being put on leave. Big changes appear to be taking place, and you're yes. a big, big reason why. Is there any chance you might stay with RSL? If given the opportunity, absolutely, yes. Like, I love this team. Uh, like you said, I've been here since day one. You know, Jason was the first player. I was the second player. And... You know, after my, you know, retiring in 2012, you know, Jason you know, brought me onto the staff, Jason and Garth. And so, like, just one to the next. Like, I've, so I've been here, um, blood, sweat, and tears, and I want nothing but, but the best. You know, I want to win. Like, I'm, you know, doing my best with the, with the, the opportunities they've given me here. And, I'm, and I, if, if he comes again, like, I would absolutely say yes. I mean, that's something that we sort of had seen even before this this current story came about is when Deloy Hansen came in and became the owner replacing Dave Checkett's, several of the people who were key people in making RSL one of the, the best teams on the continent yeah. with you on it as a player – you know, sort of left, right? So Jason Christ, the coach, ended up mm -hmm. leaving. Garth Lagerway ends up leaving, going to Seattle. 
Bill Manning ends up Bill leaving. Manning. <laughs> like, was there, how would you describe sort of the culture change that took place inside the club as a result of Hanson coming in in the first place? I Honestly, I think he had a resentment for anybody that was working with checkets. Like, so he came in and he wanted his own crew, his own, you know, front office. And if he came in right away and, you know, gutted everybody, I think it would have looked bad because we were so successful at the time. So I think he just, like, slowly grinded, grinded them to, like, to move because, you know, he, you know, delayed Jason's contract. Um, Garth had a difficult time dealing with him. And, you know, he was just, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say bully, but he was just hard to work for, especially if you came from the Checkets um, side of the organization. In the past week, we've seen several other reports now outlining a culture of racism and sexism that appear to have been deep-rooted in enhancing soccer clubs. Uh, we mentioned that Andy Carroll is been alleged to have been a big part of creating that culture, the chief business officer. Now he's on leave. How would you describe the overall culture of the soccer organization there in terms of racism, in terms of sexism, and in, in just sort of toxic nature over the years? Well, personally, um, Andy Carroll and I, he, he was a different side of the organization for us. The soccer side was completely different from the business side. So we didn't get to experience all that Andy Carroll stuff, um, to be honest. Um, we've heard rumors, but like I said, at the time we had moved over to the complex in Harriman and you know, the front the other business side stayed in at Rio Tinto. Um, but the stuff with Deloitte, it was just little comments here and there that you just knew that, like, you just shake your head and like, gosh, you shouldn't be saying that. And, it, you know, like I said, the stuff that he said around me, you know, it was just one time he said to me, I don't know, I'm not sure why everybody thinks it's twice, but um, it's one time he said it to me, and then you had the lynching part where he said to uh, Kevin Acosta. Um, and then <clears throat> another thing I can remember is uh, I was walking with him or towards him in the hallway at Rio Tinto one day, and he's like, Andy, why do you bring me so many experiences? expensive all these expensive players i'm like um try to make the team better he's like why don't you why don't you try and get some players from africa and just just stuff like that and like like come on now and then you know the incident with um with uh, albert's agent um who's a uh black english agent big time in in europe and you know he, he was talking to albert in you know, he has an English accent, you know, talking to Albert. And then he's like, well, are you speaking African over there? I'm like, uh, he's English. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure his English is better than yours. It's you know, nothing. <laughs> so just stuff like that. You, you just like you shake your head and you're like, God, he's never going to change. That's yeah. Do you think and other MLS owners were aware of this type of stuff or the league itself? Uh, I can't, can't say yes, I can't say no, but I'm um, sure just like me, you know, I've heard stories, you know, uh, you've heard stories and I'm sure it goes around and I'm sure, sure, that, you know, but the, no, but like you said, nobody would come out and say, yeah, definitely this happened. So that's, that's what I think, you know, what happened. As 
these league investigations are continuing. You know, I think the NWSL has one that's separate from the MLS. Yeah, I spoke to I spoke to uh, NWSL uh, investigator already. Okay. Do you think we're yeah. going to learn even more bad things as those investigations continue? Depends how deep they want to go. Because, um, like I said, it's not just RSL. Um, you know, he has other companies and, you know, other people have, you know, worked for him elsewhere and have come out and said, yep, now I can verify he said this or he did that. Um, so if they want to go deep, there's, you know, like I said, there's many more employees that um, are probably are w- willing to talk now since I came out. So the, the club announced that John Kimball, who's one of the founding executives of Rail Salt Lake, is coming back now as team president. Uh, you know, he's one of the links to the founding of the team. Uh, what's your reaction to that decision? I'm very, very happy with, with John coming back. I, I know him personally. Um, every now and again, he would come to the stadium, to the games. One, you know, once a month, he'll be in the building and we sit, we sit down and talk. Great, great guy. And I think he's perfect um, person to come in and kind of calm things down and get it on the right track um, and see where what happens after that. But I, I couldn't ask for a better person, to to be honest. Have you heard from Dave Checkett at all over the past week? <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> it's interesting because... because he has there my was, number, like, though. So. I, I, he probably should give you a call. Because Dave, there was always there are stories about this even in the the Salt Lake papers that he and and Deloitte Hansen did not get along. Uh, Absolutely, and that's from from years ago. And and you know Dave Checkett's obviously is is well known for running the New York Knicks and the Utah Jazz, and then yeah, starting yeah. Real Salt Lake, which which became a, a great team. Would you like to see him have a bigger role moving forward? If that's in any way possible. That would be a definite yes for me if if if, the, if that came up. But um, I know he's a busy guy. I think he's he's live, lives in New York still. So um, and that was one of the issues why he kind of was thinking about you know bringing Deloitte on in, on the, in the first place because he wanted somebody local here. And at the time he was just traveling back and forth, and he didn't think it was right at the time. We just saw a, another study released this week that outlined how few MLS coaching and front office positions are occupied by black, Latino, and minority representation. And MLS has made a lot of noise about responding to the MLS Black Players for Change organization. But do you think MLS is taking enough action on these issues right now? Um, I know they're meeting with the, the players, and I know uh, Evan Whitfield is another one that's involved with another group that's um, uh, bringing former players in, into this. So I think, I know he has a meeting with the Don Garber on the first, I think, if you told me um, to, to talk about all of this. So I know they're discussing stuff. I'm not sure what's on the table or what they're bringing to the table, but as long as they're open willing to you know, come to the table and listen to what um, those guys have to say, that's a start, which, you know, it never happened before. So at least it's, it's a start and absolutely would love to see something come out of it. Out of it. But um, like I said, I'm not sure what the topics are um, at the moment. So, but I, you know, fingers crossed that something good will come out of it. 
when you look back at your decision last week to go public on this, are you glad now that you did it? That Friday night was pretty tough. You can ask my girlfriend, like, I was in tears practically all day. Um, it was tough, but as the days went on, I got phone calls, I got text messages about people, you know, thanking me for doing it. Um, people I respect in this in the soccer business came out of out of the blue. Like some, I was like, "Whoa, how did you get my number?" Like just some of that. Um, I heard from Kobe Jones a couple of days ago too. He's like, you know, he said, "Great job, keep your head up," and you know, it's been a lot easier as you know as the week week has gone longer. Were there any other particular people by name that? That, co- that communicated <laughs> with you, that stood out, or, or anyone from the old RSL teams that you were on? Uh, Jason, Garth, absolutely. I've heard from uh, practically a lot, like a lot of people, a lot of players, um, former players too, that you know, are pretty proud of me. Are you, you're, you're okay with your safety out there, right? Uh, I, I think so. <laughs> okay, I, I, um, I don't want to <laughs> make that sound like scary or anything, but like... <laughs> Like just in terms of like how you're feeling overall right now, you're okay with how everything is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not worried about anything like that. Okay, okay. Well, good. Um, well, Andy, uh, you've had a, a a tremendous career as a player in MLS. It was fun to watch you all those years on those great RSL teams, and you've done something that I think is really important for for the league and, and everyone connected to it. So uh, thank you for doing that. And thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And like I said, hopefully it, it'll force some changes in the league. Um, but, you know, it is a lot going on in the world that needs to change. And I hope, you know, I, this is my little two cents. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Andy Williams, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.